This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was an unusual assignment for filmmaker David Lieben of Centennial to make a short film that would be shown to Johns, men who'd been caught soliciting a prostitute as part of a diversion program. The result was Live Through This, Survivors of Sex Trafficking. The documentary is now available to wider audiences through iTunes, and it was nominated this year for a Heartland Emmy Award. David is with us, and so is Jill Brogdon of Denver. She is a victim of sex trafficking who is featured in the film. She's also a member of the Colorado Human Trafficking Council, and welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. One stereotype about sex trafficking that this film takes on is the idea that workers are all smuggled in trucks in the middle of the night from somewhere afar. But Jill, your story began when you were 12 in a suburban Colorado neighborhood. What happened? Well, uh, when I was 12 years old, I was sexually molested by a school teacher um, at the Denver Public Schools Middle School. And by the time I was 14, he started asking me to sleep with other men. And eventually that turned into trafficking me to other school teachers, um, taking me to the stock show, uh, trafficking me to other friends of his. And um, I stayed in that situation until I was 18 years old. What kept you in that predicament? Uh, Fear and shame. Um, He used threats against myself and my family and uh, told me how he would lose his job and I would be shamed publicly. And he also threatened to hurt my family. Uh, There was a gun present often and just the he never used it on me obviously but just having that threat there that he could use force to make me keep going which he did uh verbally and through the threat and fear of of being exposed um, did your family have any idea what was going on no no, I. Uh, that was the one thing that he told me forever was I could never, ever tell anybody because everything would, you know, I would lose who I am. He would lose his job. If I told someone, he, he would kill my parents. He threatened to kill my siblings. An obvious question is whether he was ever prosecuted for this. No. Uh, because of the fear that I had, I never, ever told anyone until I was in my 30s. And uh, by that time, the statute of limitations had been expired, and so I had no recourse. What is the effect of it on you today? Uh, I live with it daily. I um, have gone through extensive counseling and therapies to just keep moving forward. That, that I mean, I, I have all kinds of different self-care uh, regimes that I go through. On a daily basis, it sounds like. Pretty much, yes. That is to say, it sounds like you have PTSD. You could say that, yeah. yeah. What do some of those regimens look like? Well, for instance, right now I have aromatherapy in my hand. Um, I use that to help me get right back to today, right here in front of Ryan Warner. 
instead of going back to when I was 12, 14, 16 years old, and that fear. Um, I also go to yoga three times a week, and I do acupuncture once a week, and I uh, see a ac- uh, chiropractor twice a month, and I walk every single morning. So I'd like to bring in the filmmaker. You are featured in this film called Live Through This, Survivors of Sex Trafficking. And um, it's interesting, David Lieben, that before making this film, you'd seen movies, I understand, like Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts, Risky Business with Tom Cruise, liked those films, but that working on this documentary changed your perception of sex trafficking, of prostitution. Absolutely. You know, uh, I really didn't understand. I mean, this was a learning experience for me. When I make a film, it's often uh, I come in with sort of an ignorant point of view. And that was certainly the case here in that um, I did not truly understand that uh, people who are uh, trafficked or exploited uh, very rarely have made that choice to to be there. Uh, it's it's ninety nine percent of the time they've been coerced in some way. Yeah, a lot of this film is about blowing out of the water the myth that this is somehow empowering for the woman. You know, she's chosen to do this with her body. That is very very rarely, if ever, the case. That that is correct. That was my understanding. That's what I learned about this. Yeah, and so movies like Risky Business and Pretty Woman sort of perpetuate this this perspective that I think is uh, dangerous. This is a John School video, as we said in the introduction, essentially uh, part of a diversion program. Um, you can see the shorter version of it at cprnews.org. It's part of a campaign from the Denver Anti-Trafficking Alliance, or DATA. And wh- why did you take on the project? Uh, I I wanted to know more. I I didn't. Un, um, it was it was interesting to me to to explore this. I knew there were stories there that I wasn't familiar with. So I was contacted by the Denver District Attorney's Office because they were they uh, provided me access and they connected me with Jill and some of the other survivors. And it was an opportunity for me to kind of do something that I felt was significant. Here are some numbers from data. Again, the Denver Anti Trafficking Alliance which, Jill, you also work with, 95% of women in prostitution have been physically and or sexually assaulted. 90% of individuals selling sex have experienced sexual abuse as children. Those are national figures. But, Jill, you say Denver has a very high amount of sex trafficking compared to other U.S. cities. Is that right? Yes. Um, I don't know the exact statistic statistical number, but I um, I believe that Denver is number two in the nation for, it, for trafficking. My understanding is that the, the FBI backs that figure up, and that has something to do with our location, uh, this crossing point of I-25 and I-70. Is that right? Yes. That's... Another number from data, according to uh, one study, is that 68% of individuals in prostitution met the clinical qualification for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'd like to hear um, an excerpt from Live Through This, Survivors of Sex Trafficking. As the John is engaging in sex, um, the, the client in itself is getting into deeper shame, deeper guilt, deeper embarrassment, deeper disgust. I would wash and just try to wash and wash, and I just couldn't get the smell 
of these random people off of me. I felt really bad. Any time that I wasn't high, I felt really bad about myself. And it just kind of, you just felt lower and lower. The woman we heard in that clip is Anne Wilkinson, another survivor of sex trafficking. David, what was your approach to get these women to tell their stories for the documentary? This is not easy stuff. Um, Well, the people that we interviewed, they wanted to tell the story. They felt like they were giving back and trying to educate people. And so they were very, very uh, willing to share at even to the point where one of the victims, uh, if you see the film, she's she's silhouetted because she's still fearful of what might happen. But she felt that it was important enough uh, to come forward and tell her story uh, to just educate people. So my approach was really just to be blunt and ask and see what they will tell me. And they were very, very forthcoming. And what surprised you about their stories? Uh, what really surprised me was how wrong I was um, in understanding um, of what uh, exploitation really was going on. You know, I, I, what surprised me was that the coercion uh, that the the pimps would go through in order to really get these people to do what they wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, they're clever people and they really evil people. They see an opportunity and they exploit it. And I had no idea that uh, these most of these uh, women and men, they really had no idea uh, of the coercion that was going on. And, and I did not know that. How was it to participate in the film, Jill, and dig this stuff back up? Well, interestingly, uh, I myself did not realize that I fit the definition of human trafficking until I was asked to be on the council. And uh, when when they asked me to be in the film, I I kind of went into an, a different person <laughs> because to protect myself, um, I it, it was no problem for me to to tell my story at all. Um, but after afterwards, when I was finished, the fallout was, was pretty severe. The emotional fallout. Yes. It's interesting. You did not see yourself as having been human trafficked, even though a teacher, someone that you were supposed to trust, um, essentially, I guess, sold you in some ways to other men. Um, you, you didn't see that as trafficking. No, you learn as a survivor, you learn to tell yourself stories to accept what's happening to you. So my story was, well, he loves me. Um, we're going to get married someday. We're, we, he helped me feel that story. You know, he promised that we would get married and have a family. Um, then the next story I told myself was, well, my teacher molested me. Then the next story was, well, he shared me. Then the next story was, Right before I just read the definition of human trafficking, my story was, yes, I was molested, and my te- the, the teacher prostituted me. There's a certain amount of self-preservation, I suppose. A lot. <laughs> and and that leads to, to denial, but it sounds like you've come to fully embrace what happened or accept what happened. Right. I wouldn't say it's denial. I think more than anything, it's protecting yourself mm-hmm. and it's a survival mechanism. This all happened in Colorado. You've stayed in Colorado. Presumably some of these folks who were involved in this are still around. That has to be a uh, something looming in your mind. Yes. In fact, uh, not too long ago, one of the men I was trafficked to came to change, uh, install a new roof at the house I was renting. 
and that threw me into a, a huge trigger. Um, Understandably so. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jill Brogdon of Denver is a member of the Colorado Human Trafficking Council and a survivor. She's featured in this new documentary, Live Through This, Survivors of Sex Trafficking. The filmmaker is David Lieben of Centennial, who chairs the Department of Theater, Film, and Video Production at CU Denver. Coming up, a former Denver mayor speaks at the Democratic National Convention, and third parties think they have a real opportunity to gain followers this year. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A former Denver mayor addressed the Democratic National Convention on opening night. Wellington Webb is tasked with helping the party heal from a divisive primary. He was appointed to the DNC's Unity Reform Commission. It's a collaboration among the Clinton and Sanders campaigns and the party. On stage, he told Sanders supporters, quote, there is no question the country is better now for your efforts. Then he used a sports metaphor. Just as we watch LeBron James and Steph Curry shake hands after a well-fought finals, we know the country is eager to watch these two giants move forward together to champion progressive causes, and most importantly, to ensure we swear in a president come January which will uphold the ideals we hold most dear. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are our champions. They both deserve our cheers. They both deserve our cheers. We both deserve our cheers. Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb speaking on day one of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. With fractures in both major parties, Colorado's minor parties see a big opportunity. CPR's Megan Verlee reports. At the Tanner Gun Show recently in Denver, most of the vendors were hawking firearms and accessories. But toward the back, volunteers were working hard to sell the crowd on ideas, not ammunition. Now, have you heard of the Libertarian Party before? I've heard about it. Awesome. Have you heard about uh, Gary Johnson running for president? Yes. Outstanding. So Four years ago, Gary Johnson got less than 1.5% of Colorado's vote in his first run for president on the Libertarian ticket. And the former Republican governor of New Mexico is running again. The state party hopes to see him do a lot better this time. Marie Cochran is outreach director for the Colorado Libertarian Party. We still get the argument, the lesser of two evils, but... There's really no lesser. <laughs> For a lot of people, they have a hard time, you know, picking between Trump or Hillary, who would be the lesser two. So, yeah, we're getting a lot more traction. Libertarian Party officials say their web traffic, social media engagement, and donations have all increased this year. That's being fueled by people like Paul Barron. He's a lifelong Republican and... I've never voted Libertarian. In the major election. But starting last year, the Loveland small business owner promised himself... If Trump wins the nomination... I will be voting for Gary Johnson. Barron finds Trump divisive and is turned off by the violence at his rallies. He's still a registered Republican, but hopes that his vote for Johnson will send a message about where he wants to see the party go. That's the best way to protest. Yeah, maybe throwing your vote away, but at least you're not 
you know, joining the masses of Trumpites. Baron Macia Johnson loss is throwing his vote away. But for the minor parties, winning elections isn't the only measure of success. If their presidential candidate can reach 15 percent in the polls, they have a shot at participating in the debates. If they can win 5 percent of the popular vote, it could unlock millions in public campaign funds. So just a small shift in voters would have a major impact for them. And they see opportunity on both sides of the aisle this year, from the never-Trumpers to the millions of people who gave life to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mercedes Maxwell was one of those. When she stopped to chat at the Libertarian Party's table at the gun show, she was still holding out hope Sanders might pull off a convention upset. What will you do if he doesn't get the nomination in Philadelphia? To be completely honest, I'm, I'm up in the air on that one. A lot of the things that he goes for, Jill Stein is, I'm kind of swinging her way right now, but I'm, I'm not giving up on Sanders just yet. Maxwell first started considering Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein after seeing people online compare her to Sanders. Maxwell says she's always been a registered Democrat simply because that's what her parents are. But now she's done with that party. I mean, you're not going to have my name backing you up, you know, just because you're a Democrat, but none of your policies follow anything that I believe in. Some Sanders supporters are urging Democrats to resign from the party en masse. They're calling it Dem Exit. Colorado Green Party co-chair Andrea Merida says she's fielding around 100 messages a day from newly interested voters. In a way, we've kind of been maybe the... You know, I hate to say it, but maybe the mushroom political party in that, you know, we've been in the dark, we've been small, we've been kind of quiet. But now we've got all this exposure and we're the logical home for a lot of folks that did support Senator Sanders. Merida says that so far the party isn't doing anything extra to try to woo disillusioned Democrats, in part because they're already getting so much attention, it's straining party resources. Colorado's third parties are really small. There are only around 7,000 active Green Party voters in the state. Libertarians have 27,000 active voters. David Flaherty with the Broomfield-based polling firm Magellan believes small parties have their best opportunity in a decade to pick up new members. But so far, he hasn't seen much evidence they are. There's a massive group of people that neither party is really acceptable to them right now, but also the third parties have not been able to speak to them either or, or capitalize on what should be an opportunity. However, in a year when unprecedented things seem to happen daily in the campaigns, Flaherty says he wouldn't like to make any predictions about how well the third parties might end up doing. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. And we have the pleasure of Megan in our studio now to talk more about third party hopes. Megan, in that report, you mentioned that libertarians and greens are making their pitches to Democrats who supported Sanders and Republicans who can't stomach Trump. What in those platforms, though, might appeal to those groups? Well, when I talked with one burner who switched from Dem to Green, his answer was pretty much everything. So I'm going to let him make the case. His name's Alexander Garland. He's from Lakewood. My decision to go to the Green Party was very easy. They have a progressive policy base of health care for all, of a $15 an hour minimum wage that is indexed to inflation, banning on fracking, just basically Bernie Sanders' platform. And the Green Party organizers I talked with kind of argue that Sanders is a, a Jill Stein light when it comes to progressive issues. Jill Stein, the Green Party's presidential candidate. And what pitch are libertarians making? 
They're a bit different from the Greens in that they're really trying to pick up voters from both major parties. So they're doing things like wooing disgruntled Republicans at gun shows, as we heard. Uh, they're also going to rock concerts and trying to get disillusioned Democrats to sign on. Mm. Uh, with the Democrats, their pitch is their liberal permissive stand on social issues like abortion access and the legalization of drugs. With Republicans, they talk a lot about lib limited government and liberty. Uh, and that could be an appealing argument for some Republicans who feel that Trump really isn't committed to their party's message of limited government. Uh, it probably also helps that the libertarian presidential candidate and, and his running mate are both former Republican governors. That's uh, Gary Johnson of New Mexico and Bill Weld of Massachusetts. But I should say that for both the Libertarians and the Green Party, their strongest selling point to these voters may simply be that they have vowed to try to change the electoral system uh, because both of the minor parties feel that it's rigged against them. Uh, and electoral corruption and unfairness is a message that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have championed and seen a lot of response to. So uh, and, and I think we see it in the fact that the majority of new Colorado voters are registering as unaffiliated with any party. Right. Uh, um, the minor party people are going after unaffiliated as well, uh, making the pitch that registering for a third party can be a blow to the status quo. It puts your your name, your, you add to their number. Uh, I talked about that with Karen Ann Harlow. She's the spokesperson for the Colorado Libertarian Party. Find the party that most closely aligns with your views. I would hope it would be the libertarians and register with them because then you're not just giving this ambiguous message. I'm unhappy. You're saying specifically how you're unhappy. I'm unhappy. I want more freedom. Registering is one thing. Voting's another. How do these minor parties answer the arguments that a vote for one of them gives the major party candidate that you like the least a better chance of winning? Their simple argument is that nothing will change as long as people keep voting against the other guy instead of voting for the person they prefer. Now, I, I mean, we should acknowledge that that assumes there are a lot of people who would prefer one of these third party candidates. Uh, but when I talked with Colorado Green Party's uh, co-chair, Andrea Merida, she also did acknowledge that there may be some very progressive voters out there who would otherwise be drawn to the Green Party this year who are so concerned about a Donald Trump presidency that they feel they really do have to vote for Hillary Clinton. And for them, she has an offer to make. We feel like even if you feel you need to stay on the Democratic Party reservation, as far as your presidential choice goes, you can still kind of buttress your choice by also voting our down ticket races. Like Colorado's U.S. Senate race. Who's the Green Party candidate there? The Green Party candidate in the Senate race is Arne Menconi. He served two terms as an Eagle County commissioner, as a Democrat, I should say. And he's the founder of a nonprofit that introduces at-risk youth to snow sports. The Libertarian Party also has a U.S. Senate candidate running this year. Her name's Lily Tang Williams. I heard her speak at a forum a couple weeks ago. Uh, she's a small business owner and an immigrant from China. And when she, uh, I heard her speak, she was talking about how her experiences under communism there and going through the Cultural Revolution really drew her to the Libertarian Party here. I'm going to say that we'll interview both of those candidates in the fall, in addition to the major party candidates. For now, though, Megan, does this potentially positive environment for third parties have a downside, a kind of anti-silver lining, I guess? The people you interviewed may be worried that if their parties take in too many refugee Republicans and Democrats, that those new people might demand platform changes to make their parties more mainstream. 
Well, they did say that's a pressure they sometimes face. Uh, and it could become stronger if more new members start showing up and hoping to, to change these parties to become a challenge to the, the major party status quo. They could risk gaining the whole world but losing their soul, as it were. That said, Libertarian Party spokeswoman Karen Ann Harlos told me that the fundamental ideas underpinning the party are not up for debate and are, in fact, protected by the format of the party. And when it was formed, there was a certain, I call it the libertarian creed, that was implanted into our platform that is, for all intents and purposes, impossible to change. It hasn't changed in four decades. So that has protected us. The Green Party has a similar list of unalterable principles. And, you know, I think uh, right now the parties, they're just excited about the attention they're getting. They're not too worried about what it might mean long term. CPR's Megan Verley covers politics and elections. Coming up, an Olympic coach who keeps track of his athletes' heart rates and heartaches. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coaches are often the unsung heroes of the Olympics. I mean, could you name one besides Bella Caroli? Well, we'd like you to meet Neil Henderson, who coaches cyclists and triathletes. He runs Apex Coaching in Boulder. Henderson spoke with me as CPR News covers Coloradans at the Rio Games. He took me back to the 2012 London Games when he coached the USA Women's Pursuit Team. That's an indoor track cycling event. The team won silver, but the real highlight came in an earlier round against Australia. The race started and the Australians took it out very fast. And they built up a lead that was literally bigger than we honestly thought our team could could overtake in the final bit. Uh, fortunately, we had three incredible athletes bringing them home, and they led the race, our team, for only about a half lap out of a 12-lap race. And that's what propelled us into the gold medal final round. Sarah Hammer goes for it at the head of the U.S. lineup. They're coming back very strongly. Can Australia react as she did in qualifying? Hammer driving this Team USA very tight across the line. Oh, what? The Australians led for most of the way and were picked on the line. What a ride by this trio. The yelling that I was doing on the infield was was absolutely probably the loudest I've yelled at any sporting event that I've ever been at in my life. The roar of the crowd was incredible <laughs> in London. And uh, when it when it happened, I just had this unbelievable rush and, and just that joy and pride of seeing those athletes have this almost miraculous comeback. Were you hoarse afterwards? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and we still had the gold medal final then uh, less than two hours later. What did you learn from those games that has had an impact, perhaps on how you've coached athletes competing in Rio? When you're preparing for an Olympic Games, it is a very long process. And part of it is about how you manage your energy as a coach and how you help the athletes build their performance over the time as we lead into those games. And so there's small steps that we take. And in some cases, we'll see a, a step back in performance as we're getting close to things. Mm. But that is what's going to set us up for the greatest success at the right time at the Olympic Games. So in other words, a little bit of a lull before the games, I can imagine that that would be a cause for concern. But what you're saying, now that you have you know, some, some games under your belt, that might be a good thing. Yeah, it can be used to your advantage. 
you you talked about managing your own energy as a coach. That's so interesting. Um, what do you yeah. yeah? What do you have to monitor there? Uh, it's again a, a super charged atmosphere at the Olympic Games, even just in the village. The first time when I walked into the London Olympic Village, I go through security and there's Usain Bolt and his entourage. And they're walking along and, you know, I'm trying not to be starstruck because, I mean, it's Usain Bolt. I mean, that guy is absolutely, you know, a a phenom, an incredible athlete, um, almost larger than life. And it's like, okay, well, there's Usain Bolt. I'm just going to keep going into the dining hall and do what I do. So managing that energy like that, that's happening in the village as you're seeing everyone And then the competition side of it. When we get there, for us as coaches and for the athletes, we're trying to project this aspect that we've been here, we've done this, we're prepared for this. Yes, there's a lot of cameras. Yes, there's a lot of things going on. But in reality, it's still the same type of competition that we've been preparing for and doing over the previous weeks, months, and years. Hussein Bolt, the Jamaican sprinter. Uh, I understand that you're not one for a lot of pep talks and motivational speeches. You rather take a more numbers-driven, scientific approach to coaching. Can you explain how you, I don't know, quantify athletic progress in cycling or triathlon? Yeah, we, uh, in this day and age, we have available a lot of different sensors and pieces of technology that can actually help us monitor our athletes and what they're doing in their training literally every second. So for cycling, say we have a a sensor that is measuring the power output that the rider is actually putting into the bike, the wattage exactly every second. We have also then a heart rate monitor with that, the cadence. So the basically pedaling speed, the wheel speed of the bike. We'll even use some things like a muscle oxygen sensor, which tells us a little bit about the the physiology in a non-invasive way while they're exercising. And all of that information can be collected into a a head unit and downloaded. The athlete can upload that using some software. And I can look at everyone's training after they're done, regardless of where they are in the world and regardless of where I am in the world, to get an objective view of actually how stressed or how difficult a given session was. How stressed? So does that speak just to the physical stress or can you glean something about their headspace? The great part about it is it it tells us more about the kind of physical stress and, and load that they're putting on in terms of a training load. But the really important, important part of this is with all the athletes that I coach is I ask them to put in comments of, what they did in that training session, and how they felt. There's always a plan going into it, but how did they adapt or adjust it based on how they felt or what the weather conditions were? And really, the sensations that they had during the training completes the picture. So the data, in a way, is kind of the black and white, you know, the outline. Yeah. The comments and how they felt then is the color, then being able to take that in reference to what they've done in the past and take a step back from me in an, ob- in an objective place, I can kind of see a more 3D picture then of what they've done. So what is an example of something they would tell you about their emotional or psychological state? In other words, what are the, some of the comments you've read from athletes when they... Uh, I've seen a lot of comments. And so uh, sometimes they're very brief and specific to the task at hand. You know, this week it's been very hot in Colorado. And so there have been some some comments regarding the the kind of heat and how much water they were drinking and and how they felt during that. Sometimes it goes far beyond that and it's 
they got in a fight with a boyfriend and they were, you know, they didn't sleep well the night before. And, and there's those life things going on impacting their training and performance. And do you feel empowered as their coach to say, what's going on at home? What, what happened? Absolutely. So sometimes we'll have some athletes that they're, they're doing their training and they're not seeing the, the kind of gains that we would expect over a given period of time. Uh, when that happens, it's always kind of going back and peeling back layers a little bit. So, you know, just how's everything going at home? How are you sleeping? What else is going on? How's family? Mental and emotional stress also will impact our ability to, to recover from the physical work that we do in training and trying to prepare for events. And so that interaction is really important to, to, to look at those things and be able to sometimes pull back our training relative to a high mental or emotional stress period. Mm, and adjust that based on what's happening in their personal lives. Gosh, you're part coach, part therapist, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. You know, when, when we go to a, a competition, if that athlete's head isn't in a good, good space, then physically they're probably not going to be able to get the most out of themselves in a physical way. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and as part of our coverage of Coloradans competing and contributing at the Rio Games, we're speaking with Neil Henderson. He coaches Olympic-level athletes and is founder of Apex Coaching in Boulder. And uh, his athletes are cyclists. They are triathletes. You say that a visit to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs many years ago sparked your interest in this kind of scientific side of sports. You were 16. What did you see during that visit that was so memorable? I was a competitive athlete, a swimmer and track and field. And actually when I was 15 and 16, started doing a couple triathlons just kind of for fun, not super serious. Um, but going to the Olympic Training Center and seeing where the best, you know, where the best of our country and even some of the best in the world are there training and preparing and really the the type of preparation that they were doing included not just the training but support from a sports science perspective and uh, being able to go on a tour they showed us you know kind of the outside of the sports science building and after the tour asked if it would be possible to talk to somebody about how you would actually get a job working in a in the sports science field and fortunately somebody took us into the building showed us around through the biomechanics lab they have sports psychology in there they have a physiology lab and there was a, a biomechanist evaluating race walkers. The, at the time, uh, the U.S. race walkers were not performing as well as a lot of the other international and, and European race walkers. So race walking is an Olympic sport. And so the biomechanist there was digitizing the videotaped movement of basically the international competitors versus the U.S. competitors, breaking down that movement into stick figures <laughs> in biomechanics and being able to measure the angles of the different joints and look at the clear differences between what technique our athletes were using that weren't going as fast compared to what the better and faster athletes were doing. And, and I guess, the, the, yeah, the angles weren't in their favor. So then you change, you, you adapt. Correct. Huh. correct. So then it's taking that information, providing it to the coaching staff and saying, these are the differences you need to work with your athletes to change their technique to be able to do this. So often sports segregates men and women. You know, it's the women's this, it's the men's this. I'm curious if it's different to coach men and women. 
you know, men and women both do these sports, uh, like the sport of triathlon, it's the same distances, which is, again, I think a pretty uh, comparatively a, a more forward thing that the Olympic distance triathlon is the same for men and women. In track cycling, the team pursuit event, actually in 2012, our women competed in a shorter distance than the men, and they had fewer athletes riding. There were three women covering a 3,000 meter difference. After the 2012 Olympic Games, they changed it to be the same as what the men do in team pursuit, so that it's a 4,000 meter distance hmm. with four women starting and three must finish. Um, so I'm I'm happy that you know we see more you know equity and equality in the the type of events that you know in the events and distances that they're doing. There still are some differences, like the Olympic road race, um, but as a coach, there are some differences. Could you cite a difference you've noticed? Um, it's touchy. Maybe huh? our, our communication kinda... styles. Sometimes you know I have to uh, think of a message and how I'm going to deliver it. Maybe a little bit different from men and women in some cases. Depends on the athlete and where they're coming from, uh, what their background and history are. There, there are some uh, different coaching styles that you know sometimes have been a little more uh, prominent, and, and you know with some of the guys, you know, there's often an authoritarian. You know, this is how it's done, and you don't question it. Um, and, and a lot of guys are just used to that style. And when you ask them to say, "Okay, this is like a two-way street," and I, I need your feedback about how to help get you the the best for you. And they're often not used to that if they've been in a coaching situation or they've had coaches or in teams where their feedback isn't taken. It makes me wonder how quickly you can identify if a young athlete has the chops to compete at the Olympics. Like, I, I kind of want to imagine that you can size someone up, you know, in an hour and go, no. I'd say in fairly short order, we can get a pretty good idea. Not a single training session. Uh, when I start to work with athletes, it's it's an interview process both ways. They're interviewing me, I'm interviewing them, and just trying to trying to get an understanding um, of what what drives them, what makes them tick, and uh, you know if they're already if they've been competing, you can kind of see a little bit of, of competition history and and those who are able to perform in in kind of higher pressure situations. But on occasion, you still see a, a diamond in the rough, and I'd say you know. I can you can pick that up pretty quick, even at a smaller local competition. I saw a young a young kid recently at the velodrome um, in Erie, Colorado, here at the Boulder Valley Velodrome, and and I think this kid is is clearly uh, one of these ones that I think can make it to that level. And I've seen him literally a race on a bike one time. Do you want to name him? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna protect him for right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let him let him stay uh, a little less known, but I think we'll know his name. Uh, probably by Tokyo. Neil, thanks so much for talking to us. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. Neil Henderson founded Apex Coaching in Boulder. His clients are cyclists and triathletes, a number of whom will compete at the Rio Games, which start next week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thomas Sutherland has died, a Fort Collins man who was held hostage for six years in Beirut, Lebanon in 1985. After his release, he returned to teach at Colorado State University. Let's listen back to my 2012 conversation with him. Tom, thank you for being with us. You're most welcome. Delighted to be here. You'd been living and working in Lebanon as the Dean of Agriculture for American University in Beirut, uh, and you'd done that for a couple of years. Tell me a little bit about the, the kidnapping and what happened, would you? All right. 
I had been back in the United States to recruit more people for the Faculty of Agriculture and flew back into Beirut and got out the plane and into our car, which was a nice brand-new Chevrolet, and we were going up toward the campus when all of a sudden this little brown Simca car, a French-made little car, came up alongside of us, and we all had our windows rolled down, and this young man on the right-hand side said, Who are you? And I thought, man, that's strange. What does this guy want with me? I've never seen him in my life before. And all of a sudden, boom, boom, they sideswiped us twice. And uh, then they cut us off and stopped our car. And every one of them had a submachine gun. And they started shooting all over the place, up in the air and in the road. And it was bullets flying every place. And then all of a sudden, the little guy from the front seat came around to my side, pulled open the door of our car and said, get out of the car. I didn't argue with him, man. He had a red-hot machine gun still in his hand. Was this something that was happening to other uh, Americans at the time, or you know, did it represent a pattern at all? Well, in fact, there had been about four other Americans kidnapped uh, before that. One of them was Terry Anderson, that most everybody had heard of. Sure. And then David Jacobson. And then there was another guy by the name of Frank Reed who had also been kidnapped. But I thought, you know, when they, uh, when we were at the airport, I was offered two bodyguards to go with me. And I thought, oh, uh, that, that's not necessary. We're just five miles from the campus and we don't need bodyguards. So why don't you just let them go? So we did. And that was the dumbest thing I had done in a long time. And was it Hezbollah that was responsible, like uh, Terry Anderson's case? Yes. Hezbollah was the kidnapper for all of the people that were in that Lebanese crisis bit, yeah. Hezbollah was just getting started at that time. Hezbollah, which means party of God. Did you live for six and a half years in a state of... Fear of the unknown, or was there a point at which you, you could be comfortable that you were going to be safe? Well, we never knew that we were going to be saved at all. They, they could have come in and shot us any old time or tied us up and threw us into the sea. We, we were not ever sure what was going to happen in the next day or so, except there was one thing in our favor, that we were their bargaining chips with the Western powers. Where were you held? I was in 16... All of them were in in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. the 16 places, and they were nine of them in Beirut proper, four of them were in South Lebanon, and three of them were over in the Beka Valley. And were um, were they like prison cells or what? One or two of the places were kind of like prison cells, but most of them were uh, in basement rooms or otherwise they were up on the top floor of an apartment building. They were they put curtains or closed off the windows so that we couldn't see out and nobody could see in to see us. But they weren't exactly cells, but they might as well have been prison cells. How do you deal with that mentally? What, what occupies your mind 
I mean, and you're you're someone who has sort of built a career on intellect and on the use of his mind. What what did you do? Well, they gave us books to read, a whole slug of books, and they came in. One of the young guards came in, oh, shortly after we were there, and he said, uh, "You want book?" And I said, "Oh, sure, I'd love a book." So they brought in a book, um, wh- which was uh, kind of putting down the U.S., you know. <laughs> but then I got through that book in about one night, and he comes in next morning, and, and I said, hey, that was a pretty interesting book. Can I have another book? And he said, you finish? You no finish. I said, sure, that's not a big book. <laughs> and so he brought in another book, and then another book, and then another book. And uh, from the beginning to the end, I must have read... Uh, probably 600 books. Some of them were just trash, but there were some really wonderful books involved in all of that. I was with Terry Anderson for 70 months out of those 77 months, and Terry Anderson is a Marine, ex-Marine, and a very, very bright guy with an IQ of over 150. But he, he could speed read, and he would get through those books and they would give us a half a dozen at a time between his bed and my bed. And he would be all through those six books before I was done with two. And did you have his company? I mean, you, you were able to, to talk with him. Yes, we were. And sometimes there were uh, four hostages in there with us. And we could talk as long as we kept our voices quiet. And if we ever raised our voices, they would come and say, shh, quiet, quiet, no speak, okay, quiet. <laughs> and, and so uh, as long as we kept our voices down, they didn't uh, inhibit us from speaking with each other. Well, tell us about your release and, and the circumstances surrounding it. We were released primarily uh, because Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and liberated all 17 of those guys that we were trying to liberate. And, oof, (laughs) to get up in the morning and look out the window and see a sun out there and nice fresh air and to be able to walk down the street and go to a coffee shop and have a cup of coffee as often as you wanted, oh, man, that, I tell you, that was absolute euphoria. And we, when we came back to Fort Collins, my good friend had organized a homecoming. And I think it was the biggest uh, crowd that had ever been in Moby Jim up here at CSU. And people were outside, and it was on, of course, national television and everything. And, and having been a dean, I, I talked on and on and on and on until they finally shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it must have felt a, a bit overwhelming, though. I mean, you'd been it had been such a solitary existence for six and a half years. And then you were just sort of thrown into the limelight, into the crowd. Yeah, but we were free. And uh, the lessons that you learn from being in captivity like that, you, you can learn a lot of things. And number one is the importance of your freedom. Secondly, you learn patience. And then you appreciate simple things in life, like I just said, sunlight, fresh air, color, green grass. 
Tom, I, I'm not in the studio with you, but you sound so chipper in a way, or, or so positive. This, this has not made you a, an angry person or a bitter person. No, I think if you become bitter, it ruins your life. And I decided that when I got out of captivity, I wasn't going to be angry and bitter. I actually felt sorry for these guards because, you know, none of them had even gone through school, except more than second or third grade at the most. And I had been through school, through college, through graduate school, had been a dean, had a good family and the whole business. And I just had all kinds of reasons to be happy and content. Well, Tom, thank you for sharing your experience with us. You're most welcome, sir. I'm glad to do it. Thomas Sutherland of Fort Collins was held hostage for 2,354 days in Lebanon between 1985 and 1991. He passed away Saturday at age 85. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.